Again, many thanks to Aaron for being with us and filling in this Lord's Day. Bow with me as we now seek the Lord's blessing upon His Word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for gathering us here uh, this day. We thank You for this awesome liberty. We praise You for this tremendous privilege. And we thank You for the Lord Jesus, our great High Priest, who has gone before us, leading us into the inner sanctum where we can throw ourselves prostrate at Your feet worshiping and adoring you, and we ask that you would come now by your Spirit. Bless the proclamation, the preaching of your Word. May it be true, may it be real, may it be beautiful to each one gathered here this day. In the matchless name of Christ, we ask it. Amen. You have uh, sermon notes in your bulletin. Sorry, folks, this is one of those rare Sundays where they won't help you. Um, you, are, you are on your own. The outline is very simple. Just think in terms of four headings and then several points of application and you'll be all right. You'll, uh, you'll find your way home just fine. Uh, Niagara Falls, many of us have visited it. Niagara Falls, I'm sure, a tremendous sight to behold. It is possible uh, to view Niagara Falls from a couple of vantage points. Uh, Firstly, most common, you can get a good look at Niagara Falls from above. You park your car, you walk over to the edge of the escarpment, and you see the falls in its entirety, and you see the water rushing over the edge, the mist rising in the sky, and you feel the moisture on your face. And you can see them in their glory, Niagara Falls, in their totality. It's also possible to see Niagara Falls uh, from below. If you're a brave sort, you can uh, get in a boat, the Maid of the Mist, for example, and you can get up close and personal with Niagara Falls and get that vantage point, that perspective from below and be overwhelmed by the churning water the deafening noise, the blinding cloud, and, of course, the shrieking Canadian tourist to your right. (laughs) Two very different perspectives. Uh, From above, where you see it in its entirety. Uh, From below, where it is all around you, enveloping, engulfing you. When it comes to the gospel, the same thing holds true. We can view the gospel from two vantage points. And it's essential that we do. Very important that we behold the gospel, uh, the glory of Christ in the gospel constantly and holding this balance, maintaining this equilibrium between these two vantage points. And so it's possible to behold the gospel from below. And when we look at the gospel from below... We're thinking primarily in terms of its personal significance. In other words, what does the gospel mean to me? What does the gospel do for me? But it is also possible, and extremely important that we do this occasionally, to view the gospel from above. And when we look at the gospel from above in its entirety, we're not thinking primarily of its significance for the individual. 
but its universal significance. That is, its significance for the cosmos, the universe, creation. And so important that we come at the gospel continually from these two vantage points, from below, individually, from above, its cosmic, universal significance. If we focus on one to the neglect of the other, if we simply gravitate to one and we only ever think in terms of one, we're going to end up with big problems. For example, if we only ever look at, if we only ever consider the gospel from below, we will become very self-focused, self-preoccupied. What does the gospel mean for me? And if it doesn't immediately meet my needs, my perceived needs, if it doesn't immediately address my circumstances, my conditions, well, then we kind of dismiss it as irrelevant. We can fall into that. We fall into that kind of thinking all the time. And on the other hand, if we only ever view the gospel from above, rather than being self-focused, we can become other-focused. I don't mean other people-focused. I mean other, the the surreal almost. We're always thinking in terms of the cosmic and therefore unable to bring the gospel and gospel truth down to life and apply it to every facet of life. And so as we make our way, meander through Scripture, and we're confronted constantly with the gospel, the Holy Spirit has orchestrated it wonderfully, magnificently, so that we're constantly changing our perspective, our view. At one time, we're looking at it from below, that personal, individual significance. And then immediately, we're looking at it from above, the cosmic, universal significance. And what we have in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 is what? It is a perspective from above. We are thinking large. We're looking at the gospel, and it's universal. It's creational. It's cosmic significance. As soon as we enter verse 21, next Lord's day, the Apostle Paul is going to shift gears on us. As a matter of fact, he's going to turn the car around and go in the opposite direction. And all of a sudden, he's going to force us down to look at the gospel from below and weigh its significance for us as individuals. But in verses 15 through 20, he's not primarily concerned with you or me. I know that hurts to hear that. But he's not even really thinking about you and me. He is thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is caught up in, dare I say, enraptured in his contemplation of the fullness of the glory of Christ and his significance, not for you and me, although it is there, certainly, latent, but his significance for the cosmos. It's part of a prayer. The prayer began back in verse 3. He more or less wraps up the prayer at the end of verse 20. He accomplishes three things in this prayer. From verse 3 to verse 8, he gives thanks. Faith, hope, love. Praise God. I see it in you. I thank Him for His work of grace in you. Faith, hope, and love. And then in verse 9 through to verse 14, he intercedes and he makes a request. And the request is very simple, that God would fill these believers with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then in verse 15, our text, through to verse 20, He lays aside His thanksgiving, He puts aside His petition, and now He is worshiping. 
Now he is reveling in his exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some scholars actually think these verses, 15 through 20, constitute an ancient hymn. If not a hymn, definitely a creed. The New Testament is full of creeds. There's a creed in 1 Timothy 3. There's one in Ephesians 4. There's one in Philippians 2. And if not a hymn, these verses are certainly a creed. They have a creedal form, ring, tone to them, in which Paul is focusing on the Redeemer. And we can break this, these verses into two sections, and they're behind me here on the screen. You see them. I put this up last week. Here it is again. Two sections or two stanzas. And so over here, verses 15 through 17, Paul is primarily focusing upon Christ, and in particular, Christ's place, his position, his role in creation. And he demonstrates that Christ is the supreme creator. And as he unpacks this significance of Christ's position in relation to all creation, the entire cosmos, the universe, he hones in on four truths. We looked at these last Lord's Day. And so first of all, he begins by telling us that Christ is what? He is the image of the invisible God. An image reflects the likeness of its original. An image can do that in a couple of ways. It can do so by way of representation. It can do so by way of manifestation. That's what we have here. The Lord Jesus is the image, the manifestation of the invisible God, meaning what? The original is actually present in the image because in him all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. And so, friend, you want to know God? Look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ. He who has seen me has seen the Father. He is the image, the revealer, of God. And then Paul says, not only is he the image of the invisible God, that's his relation to God. He now focuses on his relation to creation and to man in particular. He is the firstborn of all creation. And that word firstborn in Scripture can have reference to time or reference to position. In this context, it's a reference to Christ's position. He is the firstborn of all creation, meaning he is preeminent. And so it points to his authority over creation. It points to his dignity within creation. And then Paul proves it with his third and fourth statements in this section. He proves that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. He does so firstly by appealing to his work of creation. That by him, in him, all things were created. All things. He defines what he means by all things. Place in heaven and on earth. Nature, whether they be visible or invisible. As a matter of fact, the highest creatures created, whether they be thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so he is logically the firstborn of creation, Because he has created all things, place, heaven, earth, nature, visible, invisible, including the angelic beings. Therefore, he is the firstborn of all creation. And how has he created all things? He has created all things in himself, through himself, 
and for himself. In other words, he is the cause of all things. He is the means by which all things were created. And he alone is the goal of the entire creation. Creation exists for only one reason. Only one reason. It is to glorify and magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the answer. I said this last Sunday. Let me repeat it. That is the answer to the question of all questions. Why? Why am I here? Why are you here? Why are we here? What is human history all about? How do I make sense of all this? Where is it going? What is the great meaning of life? The answer to all these questions is the Lord Jesus Christ. All things created in Him, through Him, and for Him. But Paul doesn't stop there. He proves, a second point, that the Lord Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, for He Himself was before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So not only does He appeal to His work of creation, He appeals to Christ's work of conservation. Not only is Christ the reason all things exist, Christ is the reason all things continue to exist. Hear this. It's a little heady, but please hear this. Wrestle with it. The will, the will of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only reason something exists. And the will of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only reason something continues to exist. You breathe. You wave your arms. We ate breakfast breakfast this morning. We're gathered here. It's cloudy outside. The rain falls, the birds flying, the forces of gravity, the earth spinning on its axis, the entire cosmos. The Lord Jesus Christ is the glue that holds it all together. He did not abandon His creation once He fixed everything in place. He continues to sustain it conserve it, and uphold it. He is the firstborn of all creation. And so he's finished. He's finished with this realm of creation and demonstrating, just delighting in this wonderful truth that Christ is the supreme creator. In the second stanza, the second section, he shifts emphasis. He he does not put creation aside. But in the second stanza, we've moved over here now, verses 18 through 20, He focuses on a new creation. And in particular, he focuses on a wonderful wonderful reality, which we can describe as redemption. And not only is Christ the supreme creator, but he is the sufficient redeemer. And just as in the first section, he affirms this and unpacks it, by articulating those four truths, he does so in the second section. He affirms four glorious truths, and so he begins in verse 18. He, he's referring to the Lord Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. Now, what's that all about? He's the head of the body. What body? I've got a body. Here it is, arms, limbs, fingers, head, legs, knees. Okay, I, I understand a body. But in what sense is Christ head of the body, the church? So he gives us a big clue there. What he means by the body is the church. The body is the church. The church is the body. And what Paul is emphasizing is simply this, that the Lord Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, 
has taken to himself people. And he has brought these people to himself, making them one with himself by the Holy Spirit to such a degree, to such an extent, that this union can only be described by way of analogy as a, as a body, knit together, fashioned together. The Lord Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit enters in, illuminating the mind, softening the heart, whereby we repent and we believe in the Lord Jesus, we are immediately brought into a spiritual union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this union results in what? A body. And this body has obviously what? A head. And what does the head do for the body? Well, Paul unpacks this, not here, but certainly in Ephesians chapter 4 and in Ephesians chapter 5, emphasizing that this relation between head and body means what? That Christ as the head of the body is the source of our life. It's true of our physical bodies, isn't it? I just opened my hand, closed my hand. I did not do that without what? My brain, the head. The brain tells me what to do. The brain animates our entire bodies. And so, so too, Christ is the source of life to the whole body. In Ephesians 5, Paul emphasizes the fact that not only is Christ the source of life for the body, He is the authority over the body. He commands. He directs. He fulfills. He accomplishes His will. And so what Paul is doing now in this second section is he setting something else up, and he is comparing it to what? Creation. That just as you have creation, the entire created order, the universe in in its magnitude, now we have this body, this church, which constitutes what? A new creation. And then in the second truth he affirms, he tells us when Christ created or instituted this new creation. Look at what he says in verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That's an obvious reference to what? Christ's resurrection. It was upon Calvary's cross that Christ bore the curse. That curse that Adam and Eve incurred because of their sin and rebellion in the garden that curse which has marred the entire creation, that curse to which we are indebted and to which we are enslaved, the Lord Jesus bore that curse in His body upon Calvary's cross. And by His resurrection, He triumphed over that curse. And by virtue of His resurrection, He establishes, He inaugurates what? A new creation. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead. And then he explains how. How exactly Christ has established this body, this church, this new creation through his resurrection. He explains how. And with the third point, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Here Paul emphasizes his incarnation. Look, for someone to do what the Lord Jesus has done, for, the Lord Je- for, for someone to inaugurate, to begin, to commence this new creation, something of, of such magnitude and significance, this is no mere mortal. This is no mere man. No, he wants us to understand that in him the fullness 
The entirety, the wholeness, the completeness of God was pleased to dwell. He's very careful in his choice of words. Why? Because he doesn't want us to think in Old Testament terms. He doesn't want us to think of the tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle, that tent that housed the the Ark of the Covenant, or later the temple. We read when we go back into the Old Testament that God dwelt. Remember the Shekinah glory. The cloud descended, and God dwelt in the midst of His people. God dwelt in the, in the most holy place, first in the tabernacle, later in the temple. Paul doesn't want us to think like that. He wants us to comprehend that in Him, that is in the Lord Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It is an essential union and a personal union. It is not that Jesus is a man. And God decided, I'm going to occupy that man for a time. No. He dwells essentially. He dwells personally. And here we have the mystery of the incarnation. That the Lord Jesus is a person. One person. But He is a person who is fully God and fully man. The incarnation. And therefore a person who is able by His resurrection to be the firstborn from among the dead to inaugurate a new creation, His church, His people, His body. And then He answers how, again with that fourth statement, through Him, verse 20, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. We've noticed that phrase before, back in verse 16, making peace by the blood of His cross. Now again, do not lose sight of this. Paul is thinking cosmically. Heaven, earth, visible, invisible, all things created by Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. We know as a result of Adam's sin, the curse entered in. All creation was subjected to Futility. We see and we feel the cosmic effects of sin. We feel them personally in our own bodies. We see them on a social, cultural, political level. We see it even in the cosmos that not only has man been alienated from his creator, but all of creation has been alienated from its creator by virtue of Adam's fall. But by virtue of the incarnation, there is a last Adam, not a mere mortal, one in whom the fullness of deity of God was pleased to dwell, and one who bears that curse upon Calvary's cross, who dies as a man and whose death and suffering is of such cosmic significance given the fact that he is fully God. And by virtue of his sacrifice, by virtue of his blood, he reconciles all things to himself, whether in heaven or on earth. This is a cosmic Christ. Here we have the cosmic significance of Christ's work of reconciliation. It is to finally, ultimately, fully purge the entire cosmos of sin. You'd realize that's what was accomplished at Calvary's cross. Remember the two perspectives. 
We behold the gospel. And we look at it from below, don't we? What does this mean for me? That's wonderful. And we're going to get there in verses 21 through 23. Sadly, some of us never get beyond that. We need to see the gospel from above. And what it means in the fullness of time, what it means, this great plan that God has to sum up all things, whether in heaven or on earth, in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. To grant to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the preeminence over all things. To purge the entire cosmos of sin and its effects through this reconciling work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, He is the supreme Creator. That's verses 15 through 17. And make no mistake, He is a sufficient Redeemer. Verses 18 through 20. I ask myself, as I, as I reflect on this, and I try to get into Paul's thought flow, and the amazement in which he's gripped as he contemplates the, these, these truths, I ask myself, what does this all mean? Let me make a few suggestions. First is this. It shows me the full extent of God's redemptive plan. It shows me the fullness, the full extent of God's redemptive plan. The gospel is for us. Amen. It took me a long time to learn this. The gospel is for us, but it isn't about us. The gospel is for us. We're the beneficiaries. Sure, no, make no mistake. But it is not about us. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ. The universe does not exist so that we might be happy or sad. The universe exists, and the meaning of all life is simply this, that the Lord Jesus Christ might have the preeminence in all things. It shows me the full extent of God's redemptive plan. Secondly, it shows me what the life to come is really all about. I fell into faulty thinking for many, many years. It shows me what the life to come is really all about. Our hope as Christians is a personal resurrection and a universal renovation. I'll repeat it. Our hope as Christians is a personal resurrection and a universal renovation. Sadly, that is not how modern Christian pop eschatology depicts the future. Even some of our hymns, can mislead us if we aren't careful. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. If we aren't careful, that kind of line, sentiment, can feed into modern-day Christian pop eschatology, which is what? We're all going to be disembodied spirits floating around somewhere while Rick Stone plays the harp and we all sing. The majority of Christians, that's what they think is coming. That's, that's their view. It's depicted in, in so many different ways, articulated in many other ways, and at times even enters into our hymnology. But that is not what the Bible holds out for us. The Bible holds out for us a personal resurrection, body and soul, complete transformation, renovation. And it holds out for us a new heaven and a new earth. The renovation of the entire cosmos. 
There is continuity and there is discontinuity. There is continuity between what we see now and what is coming. I will still be Stephen Yule in eternity. You will still be Christian who you are in eternity. Identifiable and all that will simply be better. This cosmos will still be the cosmos in eternity. It will simply be far better. Burned with fire. It is not a consuming fire. It is a purging, renovating, transforming fire. Continuity, discontinuity. The discontinuity is the complete and final remove of the curse. The discontinuity brought in by the fact that sin and all its effects, personal, societal, political, cosmic, universal, will be completely gone. And there will be the restoration of paradise. There will be the restoration of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Oh, it shows me what the life to come is all about. Thirdly, it keeps me anchored in the midst of a boisterous sea. It keeps me anchored in the midst of a boisterous sea. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ at his resurrection, yes, he's the firstborn from the dead. Yes, by virtue of his resurrection, he has inaugurated, established a new creation. But the consummation of that new creation is waiting for what? It's waiting for our resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And all of creation right now is yearning. All of creation right now is groaning in anticipation. Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 8, in anticipation of what? The revelation of the sons of God, the redemption of our bodies. Do we have this paradigm complete in view? That we have the old creation. Yes, the universe. And there's old humanity with Adam standing at the head of that humanity. Fallen, under a curse, messed up, broken. But now we have this new humanity with Christ at the head. The one in whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And by virtue of his work, his resurrection, he has inaugurated, he has established a new creation. But that old creation continues on, doesn't it? We continue to live with the effects of the curse. And we are awaiting His return in glory. We are awaiting our future resurrection, our future glorification, which will usher in the renovation of the entire cosmos. Oh, that keeps me anchored in the midst of a boisterous sea. A failure to understand this is at the root of much discouragement, disillusionment, and disappointment that plagues many sincere Christians today. We're saved, and we don't understand why we aren't always happy. We're saved, and we don't understand why it isn't always smooth sailing. We're saved, and we don't understand why all our dreams aren't coming true. And we're saved, and we listen to that preacher on the television, and if he told us if we sent them some money, well, Grandma would get better. My sin would just evaporate, and uh, it, life would be great. And, and we get confused, and the disillusionment enters in, the disappointment enters in, because we fail to understand this paradigm. 
We fail to understand the reality of the age in which we find ourselves. A new creation inaugurated. A new creation yet to be consummated. The curse removed, yes, through the Lord Jesus who has borne that curse in full. But a curse not yet fully vanquished, awaiting His return in glory. And so here we find ourselves. And here we enter into all these kinds of struggles and disappointments and, and, and things that are, that are inexplicable and, and defy, de, de, defy explanation. And we grieve and we mourn and we labor and we toil and we journey and this sojourn and there's such difficulty and we don't understand why isn't this easy? Because we've lost sight of exactly where it is we live right now. Yes, freed from the curse and yet still living under the full effects of the curse as we await the return of our King. I have a friend, I want to mention him publicly this morning. He's with the Lord now. His name is Valdemar. And uh, Valdemar and I in Portugal, I used to tag, tag around and follow Valdemar around on Saturdays. He had fourth grade education. That's all he had, fourth grade. And put together shoes in a, in a factory. Monday to Friday, and every Saturday, Valdemar would head up into the hills near the city where we lived in Portugal, into the hills where Christ had not yet been proclaimed. And he would go door to door and just share his testimony, how the Lord had miraculously saved him. And uh, the priest, more often than not, would uh, chase him out of town. At times, he was chased out of town, people throwing stones at him. And uh, he was a lion, just a lion, boldness. When it comes to the proclamation of the gospel, lost, lost contact with, with Valdemar a few years back. Emailed another friend in Portugal this past week. Hey, can you update me on, on, on Valdemar's uh, address so I can write him a letter? You didn't hear. He died two years ago. Cancer. 45 years of age. Friends, that should make us angry. That is not the way it's supposed to be. That's not the way this world is supposed to be. We live with the effects of the fall. We still live and we feel in our very bodies and souls the effects and the consequences of original sin. And we are waiting, we are yearning, we are groaning right along with creation for what? The revelation of the sons of God the redemption of our bodies, that future resurrection which will usher in a new heavens and a new earth in which the Lord Jesus Christ, the supreme Redeemer, will purge the entire universe of sin and all its consequences. Oh, it's a glorious reality. Sadly, far too often we're blind to it. We fail to see the big picture, the big perspective, and weigh and understand exactly where we're at in the, unre- the revealing and the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. Oh, creation is groaning. And creation is beautiful, isn't it? Rugged coastlines, mighty canyons, fertile valleys, majestic forests, rushing rivers, Placid lakes, and on and on. Creation is beautiful. Friends, creation is broken. And creation itself, Paul tells us again in Romans 8, is, is groaning. Groaning for something else. 
groaning, Paul actually says, with the pangs, the pain of, you ready for this? Childbirth. You understand? The, the entire universe right now is groaning with the pain, the agony of childbirth. It finds itself in the grips of that, those labor pains, that intense discomfort. And yet it is an anticipatory groaning. It is a pain full of expectation. Because just as a woman, through the agony of childbirth, gives birth to life, so too the groaning and the excruciating pain in which creation finds itself now will give birth to the renovation of the entire cosmos. Paul tells us right there in that same text that we groan right along with creation. Oh, praise God. We're seated with the Lord Jesus Christ right now in the heavenly places. All those spiritual blessings which are part of the new creation, they are ours. It's like a will, a testimony. They're ours. But we have not yet entered into the full enjoyment of them. That's coming. And our hope is fixed. And if we lose sight of that hope, if we lose sight of the reality of where we're at right now, oh, the disillusionment and the disappointment and the discouragement and everything else that accompanies it will just overwhelm us and beat us down. We keep our eyes fixed on the big picture. It keeps me anchored. keeps me anchored in the midst of a boisterous sea. Fourthly, let me affirm, it focuses my heart where it needs to be. When I contemplate this passage, Christ, the supreme creator, Christ, the sufficient redeemer, it focuses my heart. I'm thinking of my affections in particular, love, delight, desire, where they need to be. Too many of us, too many people, definitely unbelievers. If you're an unbeliever, I'm speaking of you right now. Sadly, it's true of even many believers, too many of us are trying to heal our brokenness with something that is broken. That's how most people go through life. If you're not a Christian, that's how you're going through life right now. You're trying to heal the brokenness. You are broken. You're born broken, riddled with sin and suffering the consequences of sin and living in a fallen world, broken. Here is the sad reality. Most people are trying to fix their brokenness with something that is already broken, creation. It's broken. We must look to the creator, the supreme creator and the sufficient redeemer who is the only one who can heal our brokenness because he is the only one who possesses the remedy for the root of all our problems, which is our sin. Because he is the only one who has reconciled all things to himself through the blood of his cross, the cross. He is the only one who has borne that penalty, that curse in his body on the tree, thereby securing the forgiveness of God, thereby securing the favor of God, dare I say, thereby purchasing God for all who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you aren't a Christian, do you understand that? At times, I fear we don't don't really get the the big picture, the big picture. 
We're, we're, we're below looking up. That yes, to be saved, to, to, to know sins forgiven. Oh, what a precious truth, precious reality. To have the hope of eternal life, exceptional. Oh, the exuberance that, that, that should captivate and grip our hearts. Oh, but friends, to understand that the greatest blessing purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross is God himself. You ever thought of it like that? He purchased God for us. He purchased fellowship with God. He purchased communion with God. Made beings made in the very image of God, but beings that broke away. And now living our lives however we please, living vain, futile, empty lives. And now to know and have offered to us through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, faith and repentance to know that we can return to our soul's center and rest and find complete fulfillment in Him, find ultimate satisfaction in Him, find superabounding joy, delight in Him. Oh, it focuses my heart where it needs to be. Too many of us. These are the words of another preacher. Too many of us. We handle the gospel like a Happy Meal toy. It's true. We handle the gospel as if it were a happy meal toy. You pick up and play with and then throw it out when you don't need, it doesn't serve your purposes anymore. Oh, we need to see the big picture and grasp the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ revealed, yes, firstly, as He is our supreme creator. Secondly, our sufficient redeemer. That same preacher wrote the following, a good portion of the world is in an unbelievable mess of poverty, famine, civic unrest, and violence. Broken. This world is broken. And yet if you turn on the news in the United States, you'll be far more likely to hear about the daily activities of pop stars and actors, or how much money an athlete is making, and who he's dating, or dare I insert an appropriate thought right here, the, mind, the latest mindless, mindless reality TV show. Surely anyone can see that our worship switch is always on and we're tuned to some ridiculously finite broadcasts. Grown men paint their bodies and surf an incalculable number of websites to follow a sports team. Significant emotional energy poured into the physical abilities of children in a child's game. Go to any concert, and you'll see people lift their hands spontaneously and clap and close their eyes and be spiritually moved by the music. People fish or hike to be in tune with nature. We put posters on our walls, stickers on our cars, ink under our skin, and drugs into our system. We do all of these things and others like them, pouring ourselves automatically and quite naturally into what is decaying. It's all decaying. We want to worship something. Worship is an innate response. We are wired for worship, but something has gone dreadfully wrong with the wiring. Dreadfully wrong with the wiring. That is the effect the full effect of sin. Oh, I pray our wiring gets rectified this day. 
And we see the Lord Jesus in this beautiful, powerful, magnificent text. We're filled with wonder as we ponder the significance of the incarnation. In him, all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. And we're filled with excitement as we consider the resurrection. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And we're filled with a crushing sense of despair as we see our sin. That we're filled with exuberance when we know that our sins are forgiven through the reconciling work of the Lord Jesus Christ for all who repent and believe in Him. And that we are filled with awe as we behold Christ in the fullness of His glory. We sang it earlier. Let me just repeat one of the stanzas now in conclusion. Perhaps one of my favorite stanzas of all time. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O Thou of God and man the Son, Thee will I cherish, Thee will I honor, Thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Our great God and glory above. We pray that you would condescend now to bless the preaching of your word as we have heard it this day. May you again you may again you give and grant eyes to see and ears to hear. May you remove the stony heart. May you break and subdue as only you can the stubborn will. May you clear the darkened and dull mind. And give us enrapturing sights of your glory in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as so beautifully and magnificently revealed in his work of redemption. We ask it in his most precious and worthy name. Amen.